Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to Haunted Up North. The British-based podcast that's made entirely of ghosts. (laughs) It's dedicated to the telling of real-life paranormal experiences from the north of the UK and hosted by me, Victoria, live. Kind of live, not really live, but it is alive and brought to you from the time-worn cobbles of Howarth in West Yorkshire. I do hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the spectral tales I'm about to tell you today. But before I get to the spectral tale-telling, I just want to say, Happy, almost, Halloween! That's Happy, almost, Halloween played backwards in the style of a 1970s Satanist. Yay! And it's not just almost Halloween, the best day of the year, which, as you all know, is tomorrow, not today. It's also Haunted Up North's almost first birthday. One year ago to the almost day, Haunted Up North released their, my, very first full-length episode on none other than Halloween, the 31st of October, 2021 entitled Howarth's Haunted Pubs. That was the name of the episode. I did release a little mini episode a couple of weeks before that on the 11th of the same month, so technically I've already had my first birthday, really. But in terms of proper Haunted Up North episodes, Howarth's Haunted Pubs was my first real big daddy effort, which seems like only yesterday, to be honest. But it wasn't. It was a year ago. Almost. If, after listening to this episode, you'd like to scroll back and have a listen to it, please do. But please also bear in mind that although a year doesn't seem like a huge amount of time to look back upon, in terms of podcast hosting, editing, recording and writing skills, believe me, it really is. I find it quite difficult to listen to myself in that very first episode because I remember recording it in my attic and being absolutely <laughs> so nervous of the sound of my own voice that I just wanted to get the recording out of the way and over with because I was incredibly self-conscious with a lot less self-confidence in terms of, you know, talking into a microphone. And when I listen to it now, I wish more than anything that I could go back in time and tell my younger self to just slow down and enjoy yourself a bit. Stop ploughing through the process like flipping Roadrunner, you divvy. Honestly, it's so... it's not that bad, it's okay. I think it probably sounds worse to me who's created it than it would to anyone else listening to it, but it, it's it's so rushed in parts, which causes me extreme cringe, and the background ghost noises are, like, way too loud and not particularly subtle, as they probably are for the first four or five episodes of Haunted Up North, but you live and learn, and, you know, I'm putting myself down a bit too much here, as we humans do tend to do to ourselves, because they're still pretty entertaining efforts, and they're they're definitely worth a listen, so especially in terms of subject matter, and who knows, in another year's time, I'll most likely be saying the same thing about this episode on birthday number two. I'll probably be like, those ghost noises are too quiet, Vic, and why are you talking so slowly? 
I did seriously consider going back and re-editing them, but I think such an act could possibly be verging on clinical perfectionism, so we'll leave them as we are, as they are, for now, and focus on the current matter at hand, which is celebrating Haunted Up North's almost first birthday with a very special Halloween Scottish tale that I think you're all going to massively enjoy. This story was recommended to me by Martin. Martin has been a regular guest on Haunted Up North. If you're a regular listener, you'll have no doubt met him before on a handful of Hun episodes, and I'm hoping he's going to join me next time, or sometime soon, to discuss a northeastern England-based childhood-related ghost story. So, fingers crossed for that. However, this particular story he sent me one night, and afterwards I spent far too many hours being completely glued to my phone, reading about it and googling various pictures relating to the entire topic. You know, like when you suddenly click on a true crime story, when you're about to go to bed and you end up trying to solve the murder by going down one virtual rabbit hole after another, thinking you can single-handedly solve the crime instead of going to sleep. Anyway, it was a bit like that, and though this story is not a true crime one, it's nonetheless very interesting. It's more folkloric in nature than most of Haunted Up North's previous episodes, and focuses upon a Scottish spectre who supposedly haunts the summit and passes of Ben McDewey, the highest peak of the Cairngorm Mountains and second highest mountain peak in the British Isles after Ben Nevis. Ben Nevis sits towards the western end of the Scottish Highland Grampian Mountains, which occupy nearly half of the land area of Scotland, while the Cairngorms sit more towards the east, with the mountain of Ben McDewey sitting on the southwestern edge of the Cairngorm Range. Ben McDewey, translated from Scottish Gaelic as Macduff's Mountain, has a summit of 1,309 metres, which is 4,295 feet above sea level, and marks the boundary between the historic shires of Aberdeenshire and Banffshire. In the days before maps were crafted to a much higher rate of accuracy, it was thought by many that Ben McDewey might be the highest point in Britain. However, following surveys of both peaks in 1847, no, sorry, <laughs> following surveys of both peaks in 1846 to 1847, Ben Nevis was confirmed as the highest with a peak of 4411 feet. However, Ben Nevis, though your mountain peak may be higher than Ben McDewey's, it's most certainly not the spookiest, because Ben McDewey has a special spooky something that Ben Nevis can only dream of, and that special spooky something is... Am fear lieth more. The summit and passes of Ben McDewey are reportedly haunted by a legendary presence or creature named Amphia Lieth Moor, which is Scottish Gaelic for Big Grey Man. Amphia Lieth Moor, though very few people have ever seen him, or her, or they, them, is described as being over ten feet tall, very thin, with long arms, broad shoulders, and dark skin and hair. 
Most eyewitness reports describe him as an unseen entity who remains hidden inside the surrounding fog, largely making his presence known through a series of sounds such as crunching gravel and an overall uneasy atmosphere. No documented photographs of the big grey men of Ben McDewey exist, meaning that any possible evidence of a paranormal entity living atop the UK's second highest mountain is limited to and relies heavily upon the narratives of those who've experienced something unsettlingly strange whilst wandering about this steep, desolate and isolated terrain. Encounters involving Amphia Lyathmore go back almost as far as an entire century. In fact, longer than that actually. The first recorded account was made in 1925 by English scientist, mountaineer and explorer J. Norman Colley, who told of an alarming ordeal he once experienced whilst hiking alone near the summit of Ben McDewey nearly 35 years earlier in 1891. I was returning from the cairn. <laughs> Not really. I've no idea what accent this guy had. I'm just, uh, I'm just being silly. I usually presume most mountaineers are posh because I always presume you have to be time rich in order to spend so many hours and days climbing up really high things and, you know, not working in a day job or whatever, doing something during the day that you need to do to earn money or, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, possibly, in my opinion, you might need to be time rich to be awarded the official title of mountaineer, but I know next to nothing about these things, so please don't take that as, as fact. I'm just explaining why I... <laughs> descended into a posh voice. I think Collie spent a lot of time in study, teaching, and what have you, but any anyway. <laughs> so, I was returning from the cairn, but another thing, the cairn. The cairn, I think this cairn he refers to is a cairn that sits on the summit of Ben McDewey. A cairn, of course, is a man-made pile or stack of stones usually used as a marker or burial mound. In this case, this particular cairn marks the top of Ben McDewey. I was returning from the cairn on the summit in a mist when I began to think I heard something else than merely the noise of my own footsteps. Every few steps I took, I heard a crunch, as if someone was walking after me, but taking three or four times the length of my own. I said to myself, this is all nonsense. I listened and heard it again, but could see nothing in the mist. As I walked on, in the eerie crunch, crunch, sounded behind me, I was seized with horror and took to my heels, staggering blindly amongst the boulders for four or five miles, nearly down to Rothy Murch's forest. Whatever you make of it, I do not know, but there is something very queer about the top of Ben McDewey, and I will not go back up there again. So, Collie must have been, if uh, my calculations are correct, in his early 30s at the time that that experience took place. So, from what I can gather, he'd only been seriously climbing for a handful of years before that, so he probably wasn't considered a veteran climber at that point. And this account of his potential encounter with the big grey man, which he doesn't actually say is the big grey man, but it suggested that something related and untoward affected him up there. This encounter obviously seriously affected him in such a way that even 35 years after, 
when he will, I guess, have been considered a veteran mountaineer, he still refused to return to Ben McDewey and hadn't been able to find a way of reasoning with himself over anything he saw or heard. So that's just quite interesting to note, I reckon. Something happened to him up there that was still with him for the rest of his life, that he still related 35 years later as something paranormal. After J. Norman Colley's story was reported in the press, encouraged by the fact that such a respected mountaineer had dared to publicly share such a peculiar tale, a string of additional climbers came forward to detail their own disturbing experiences on Ben McDewey. Hugh D. Welsh stated that in 1904, he and his brother heard slurring footsteps throughout both the hours of day and night, as if someone was walking through water-saturated gravel, with both having felt, uh, quote-unquote, frequently conscious of something near us, an eerie sense of apprehension. In his 1939 book, entitled Always a Little Further, about climbing in Scotland. Oh. Alistair Borthwick details an account of two climbing acquaintances who had their own experience with what they believe to be Am Fear Lieth More. He writes about the first man. The first was alone, heading over Ben McDewey for Cura on a night when the snow had a hard, crisp crust through which his boots broke at every step. He reached the summit and it was while he was descending the slopes, which fall towards the larig, that he heard footsteps behind him. Footsteps not in the rhythm of his own, but occurring only once for every three steps he took. I felt a queer, crinkly feeling. <laughs> crinkly bottom. <laughs> I felt a queer... <laughs> I felt a queer, crinkly bottom feeling in the back of my neck, he told me. But I said to myself, this is silly. There must be a reason for it. So I stopped, and the footsteps stopped, and I sat down and tried to reason it out. I could see nothing. There was a moon about somewhere, but the mist was fairly thick. The only thing I could make of it was that when my boots broke through the snow crust, they made some sort of echo. But then every step should have echoed, and not just this regular one in three. I was scared stiff. I got up, and walked on, trying hard not to look behind me. I got down all right. The footsteps stopped a thousand feet above the larig, and I didn't run. But if anything had so much as said boo behind me, I'd have been down to Curra like a streak of lightning. The second man's experience was roughly similar. He was on McDewey, and alone. He heard footsteps. He was climbing in daylight, in summer, but so dense was the mist that he was working by compass, and visibility was almost as poor as it would have been at night. The footsteps he heard were made by something or someone trudging up the fine screes which decorate the upper parts of the mountain, a thing not extraordinary in itself, though the steps were only a few yards behind him, but exceedingly odd when the mist suddenly cleared and he could see no living thing on the mountain at that point devoid of cover of any kind. Did the steps follow yours exactly? I asked him. No, he said. That was the funny thing. They didn't. They were regular, all right. But the queer thing 
was that they seemed to come once for every two and a half steps I took. He thought it queerer still when I told him the other man's story. You see, he was long-legged and six feet tall, and the first man was only five feet seven. Once I was out with a search party on McDewey, and on the way down, after an unsuccessful day, I asked some of the gamekeepers and stalkers who were with us what they thought of it all. They worked on McDewey, so they should know. Had they seen Amphia Lyathmore? Did he exist, or was it just a silly story? They looked at me for a few seconds, and then one said, We do not talk about that. Ha ha, that's like a story I once read and talked about on a Patreon episode about British Bigfoot sightings where a guy was working in a field for some Lord of the Manor type person and spotted a Bigfoot watching him from some nearby woods and when he told his employer, this Lord of the Manor, he was like, sort of matter-of-factly, this is what he said to him, he said, Oh yes, we call them woodworms here, leave them be. Which is quite, it's quite creepy, but it's, it's funny the mysterious things we talk about with such excitement that others just think of as a weird accepted part of life, isn't it? They just choose not to, they, they don't disbelieve it and they don't pretend it doesn't exist, but they don't, they, they just don't want to know about it, so just leave them be. The British Bass Podcast In 1945, during World War II, Peter Densham, whilst participating in rescue work in the Cairngorm Mountains, experienced an incident in which he heard strange noises and a sensation of creeping pressure around his neck as the mist that surrounded him grew thicker, drawing in on his location. He fled the scene before he was able to see anything tangible. However, a friend and fellow climber who wished to remain remain anonymous related an encounter he'd had whilst camping on Ben McDewey, where he'd abruptly awoken one night with an inescapable feeling of dread, and looked out of his tent to see a large figure with dark hair standing in front of the moon in silhouette. Another mutual friend, and this is the story that for some reason frightens me perhaps the most so far. Another mutual friend named Richard Frere, a a mutual friend of Densham and McNonymous, a, a mutual friend named Richard Frere described a time when he'd experienced a presence utterly abstract but intensely real on the mountain and heard, and this is the bit that really scares me, an intensely high singing note a few years later in 1948. Ooh, what do you mean? Like a singing note from an instrument or from the face of a monster type thing. A monster's face opening its mouth and singing really high with its face. Imagine it, on top of a mountain, by itself, just opening its mouth and singing one musical note of highness. It's scary! In 1958, naturalist and mountaineer Alexander Chu Chunyon <laughs> Chunyon perhaps it's pronounced Tunian. Tunian, is that the poshest name you ever heard? It's like a posh sound, not just a posh name. Tunian. Tunion. Alexander Tunian 
naturalist and mountaineer, in 1958 published an article in the Scots magazine. The Scots! The Scots are coming! He published an article in the Scots magazine about his own peculiar dealings with Amphia Lyathmore from 1943. I spent a ten-day leave climbing alone in the Cairngorms. One afternoon, just as I reached the summit of Benmet Dewey, mist swelled across the Larig Grew and enveloped the mountain. Larig Grew is one of the mountain passes through the Cairngorms. The atmosphere became dark and oppressive. A fierce, bitter wind whisked among the boulders, and an odd sound echoed through the mist. A loud footstep, it seemed. Then another, and another. A strange shape loomed up, receded, came charging at me. Without hesitation, I whipped out the revolver and fired three times at the figure. When it still came on, I turned and heard down the path, reaching Glenderry in a time that I have never bettered. You may ask, was it really the fear lieth more? Frankly, I think it was. <laughs> Revolver Man. <laughs> the legend of Revolver Man. That's frightening. What the hell, Alex? What would you do? What would you do? I know what I'd do. But if Martin were here, he'd say he'd befriend the monster and join his or her or their monster army and live up there with them instead of living with the humans. And he, he says that about everything. Aliens, wolves, tigers, apes. He basically longs for the day when Planet of the Apes becomes a reality. And he's, he's constantly holding out hope for that to happen sometime in the near future. Preferably while he's still alive to see it. But anyway, I wouldn't do that. I would also... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'd, I'd be tempted to just stand my ground, but it's, it's one of those fight-or-flight situations, isn't it? Humans are doomed now because our instincts are just so confusing. <laughs> I'd probably just try and make myself look big and shout, like you're supposed to do with a bear. Uh, like I said, there's no tangible evidence of the big grey man's existence, though in his book Romantic Strathsby, photographer James A. Rennie wrote that he had captured camera footage of strange large foot-shaped imprints in the snow in the Spey Valley, about 15 miles from Ben McDewey. They measured 19 by 14 inches, which is quite a size and potentially very exciting as that's obviously far too big to be passed off as a normal man-sized footprint. However, Rennie later discovered these supposed footprints were, in fact, made by a natural phenomena caused by rainfall eroding the snow. Ooh, whatever. Disappoint us, why don't you? Rainfall eroding the snow. On the subject of mistaking potentially normal matter for potentially paranormal matter, psychologists have proposed that these Amphia Lyathmore sightings could be explained by various natural stimuli, such as infrasound, which can be generated by wind and cause feelings of unease and anxiety, which is what many of these hikers were described as feeling during these big grey man encounters. There's another cool natural phenomena that could possibly explain these sightings of large figures looming in the nearby distance, which I genuinely find quite fascinating and mysterious in itself. 
It's an optical illusion called the Brocken Spectre, and according to Wikipedia, a Brocken Spectre, or Mountain Spectre, so named after the foggy peak of Brocken in the Haas Mountains of Germany, can occur in certain atmospheric conditions when the sun is at a particular angle. The subject's shadow can be passed onto a cloud bank around them, creating the illusion of a large, shadowy humanoid figure. This eerie effect can appear on any misty mountainside, cloud bank, or from an aeroplane, and was first described by Johann Silberschlag, you schlag, in 1980. The spectre appears when a strong light source, be that the sun or a lantern, shines from behind the observer who is looking down from a ridge or peak into mist or fog. The light projects their shadow through the mist, often in a triangular shape due to perspective, and it will also appear bigger than the size of the observer because an optical illusion effect can cause them to believe that the shadow, reflected on nearby clouds, is comparative in size to distant objects like hills, for example, that they can see inside gaps within the clouds. If that makes sense? I think that's how it works. The spectre can also appear to move of its own accord because of movements within the clouds or mists, and obviously it may also move if you yourself move too. The poet James Hogg, oink oink, encountered a Brocken spectre on Ben McDewey as far back as 1791, describing a giant at least 30 feet high and equally proportioned and very near me. I was actually struck powerless with astonishment and terror. Hogg's terror subsided when he observed the figure making the same gestures as his own, realising it was merely his own shadow when he removed his hat. Mm. It's weird though, isn't it? Despite how experienced... I've said this before, like, despite how experienced and potentially weather-hardened these climbers who've reported Big Grey Man sightings on Ben McDewey would have been, Their first reaction still was to put these experiences down to paranormal rather than natural phenomena. I guess when you're tired, cold, and suffering from various mind-altering elements being so high up above sea level like that, I guess your mind would probably take on a life of its own that doesn't necessarily exist inside the boundaries of logic. But there you go. The legend of Amphia lieth more. Happy Halloween, guys. Some people think it's a ghostly presence. Some believe it to be the UK's answer to the Sasquatch. And some think it merely a cacophony of natural phenomena attacking the human senses. According to Undiscovered Scotland, there are some who think the Grey Man could be connected to not just one Grey Man, but several ten-foot-tall Grey Men or creatures living on top of Ben McDewey. I did myself think that as I was researching this episode, that there could be more than one big grey man, presuming that you believe that there are monsters living up there. And I sometimes feel like that about Nessie, the, you know, the Loch Ness Monster. What what if it's not just one Nessie, but lots of Nessies? A family, in fact. A family Ness. Queen Victoria herself, the one and only, hiked to the summit of Ben Dewey on the 7th of October 1859, aged 40. 
Oh my god, 40 years old, man. But this is what she had to say about her experience. Uh, we'll read this in a posh voice, because I'm mightily sure of the fact that she had one, Queen Victoria. I think she had a posh voice. What do you think? I had a look to see if there were any recordings of Queen Victoria's voice, and I found that there's only one possible documented recording of her voice that still exists, recorded in the autumn of 1888, also the year of Jack the Ripper by Sidney Morse at Balmoral, which may or may not be her voice, but some believe it is. I'll add it to social media if you're interested. I know it's not related directly to the paranormal, but it is a long dead voice from the past, so it is sort of a ghost voice if you look at it that way. As Lady Tankerville said in her leaflet on the ghosts of Chillingham Castle, as mentioned in Hun number 13, speaking of her grandfather in 1925, what would that wise old gentleman have said about my sanity had I told him that in a magic box called the gramophone I could daily hear music and songs and speeches of the past or present? Those too are ghosts, and so too is Queen Victoria a ghost in that respect, or her voices anyway. So there. But anyway, it's very faint, this supposed recording of Queen Vic's voice. Get out of my pub! But I have listened to it, and I can confirm, if indeed it was her, that she had a very posh voice. So this is what she said, Queen Victoria, about climbing Ben McDewey, the second highest mountain in the ununited kingdom. It had a sublime... <laughs> it had a sublime and solemn effect. <laughs> that was a bit... That didn't, that didn't stay in the posh voice I thought it would. <laughs> it had a sublime and solemn effect. So wild. So solitary. No one but ourselves and our little party there. I had a little whiskey and water, as the people declared. Pure water would be too chilling. I, that's it. Um, I wonder if she ever met the spectre of Amphia lieth more. It must have felt very strange for Queen Victoria in situations like that, being around people pretty much constantly, to finding herself alone on the highest, well, the second highest mountain in the UK. Although she and I, despite sharing a name, will probably have vastly differing definitions of what a little party would constitute. She probably went up there with about 50 people or something, and I don't think I even know 50 people. My little party would involve me and my cat. I don't, I don't even have a cat now, so... Speaking of Victorian things, I had some new windows put in the front of my house this week at the time of this recording, and the guys who put them in told me that although although I suspected they might be, because they were single-paned wooden sash-type things with glass that was basically blurred and melting, but I couldn't quite believe it, so I didn't know whether it was true or not without having it confirmed by experts, they told me that my old windows that got replaced by these new ones uh, from when the house was originally built which was in 1890 flipping seven. So basically, I've been living <laughs> during an energy crisis with Victorian windows that don't keep heat in at all, which is, it's, it's nice, because it's obviously amazing gazing at a piece of awesome antique bit of history, but not so nice when I think of all the winters I've probably shivered a little more than necessary in a 21st century world. 
So I'm hoping my life gets a little bit warmer from now on, but the thing that's genuinely scaring me is that I'm worried that because these windows were the originals and they're probably the only thing that we've changed in terms of the house's, uh, let's say, original genetic makeup that hasn't already been changed by previous owners, I'm worried that I've unsettled something. Like when you hear about people doing work on old buildings and suddenly strange things start happening around the place because there's been a DIY disturbance and the ghosts that reside in whatever form inside the property get cross at you for fiddling with their architecture. So I'm I'm a bit nervous I'm going to get haunted as punishment. But I'll let you know if anything untoward occurs. I actually found a piece of one of the old Victorian wood frames as I was going downstairs earlier. Like a little slither that the window people... The window people, they're here! That the window people left. So that means there's still a tiny piece of the old windows left inside the house. So perhaps that'll satisfy the spirits for now. I've put it in my kitchen crockery wall display. (laughs) And I'll keep it there for the foreseeable as some sort of shrine-like offering to the dead Victorians in my house. Oh, uh, Google Brock Inspectors. Google them and look at pictures and videos of people who've recorded them while they're walking on hills and stuff. There are lots of good aeroplane ones as well, recorded from inside aeroplanes. And there's some impressive bits of footage that I'll add to the very scary VT playlist on YouTube. I love the way that some of them do look like these figures, these Brock Inspectors. I love the way that some of them do look like there's a big dark giant moving about amongst the hills, like a huge godlike apparition stalking the mountainside. And who knows, perhaps that's how Greek myths about gods living on top of Mount Olympus came from before Brock Inspectors could be explained. You just never know, do you, Northlings? This I do know, however. I'm going to go away now, to my going away place. Thanks for listening everyone, and for letting us inject a bit of Ben McDewey soul into your day. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones, and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live the Cairngorms and all who haunt them, and may their power forever compel you to never be afeard of the sight of your own shadow self. In fact, befriend your shadow self for it is part of you, and you, my friend, I have to say, are absolutely awesome. See you later. Bye! A monster's face opening its mouth and singing really high with its face.